And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is the Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And we would love to have you as part of that conversation. There are a couple of ways to do that. You can either email me at fromertravelshow at yahoo.com, or you can hit us up on social media. And that's a fun thing to do, even if you don't want to be a guest on the show. You can find us under the name Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Pinterest, on Instagram, on Facebook, and on Twitter. Or best of all, come visit us at fromers.com where you'll find really exciting travel information 24 hours a day, seven days a week to help you plan your next vacation or just dream a little bit about travel. Okay. Pauline, in recent years, it seems as though United Airlines has suffered more criticism for their service attitudes than almost any other major carrier. Somehow or another, in most times when we have read a travel blog or a travel article, there was a critical assault upon United Airlines. And because of that, it's especially satisfying (laughs) to report today that United Airlines has now adopted a truly marvelous new method of bringing advantages to their passengers. United has just announced a new policy bearing the name, and I quote, bearing the name United Connections. It's a policy, I might add, that virtually guarantees that you will no longer miss your connecting flight on a one-stop flight to your eventual destination. Mm. We have all experienced uh, this experience before, Pauline, on on other airlines. You book a flight to your destination that includes uh, an interim stop and a change of planes. For example, let's say that you are flying from Los Angeles to Atlanta, Georgia, on a plane that makes a stop en route and a change of planes in Kansas City. Uh, But your flight from Los Angeles is delayed in taking off, and you arrive in Kansas City only five or ten minutes before the scheduled departure of your connecting flight to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. But it takes more than ten minutes to walk from one gate in Kansas City to another gate fairly far away uh, from where the next plane is scheduled to take off. And so because of that, you miss your connecting Mm, flight. Now, under the new policy of United Airlines, which is called United Connections, this will no longer happen. The United Airlines computer will know that you have arrived late for that connecting flight, and it will hold up the connecting flight for enough time to enable you to reach it. It will do that when possible. It's going to make it every once in a while. Pauline, it won't be able me, to let fully Let me finish up that. and you'll okay. see that there All are right. no problems to this. That computer will know, in effect, that you are on a connecting flight and it will, uh, it will do everything in its power to delay the takeoff of the connecting flight in order to assure that you are right. on it. 
It used to be that a human being, namely a gate agent, would perform this job of delaying the departure of the connecting flight, but too often that goal was missed by mere human personnel. And now the computer will know as a certainty. It will know that there are passengers that are who are rushing through the airport to make a connecting flight. And right. no one will be left behind I don't now. know, Dad. I, from what I've read, it won't be nobody will be left no, behind. Nobody, because, because, but an enormous uh, percentage uh, yes, of the people it's going to be much, much better. will find that the plane has been, been delayed in order to accommodate right. uh, your arrival. Because if you and, delay too many planes, then and somebody who's on that flight trying to get to their connection will miss it. Well, let me ask you this. The question arises, does this reliance on computers and forced delays, does it delay the arrival of the connecting flight? In other words, is a connecting flight unjustifiably put off, put off too late because the, the fact that the computer is saying there are still passengers rushing through the airport right. to get onto it. United says... No, this will not happen. It points out that there is so much padding that is inserted into the flight times of its airlines, of its airplanes rather, that an occasional delay will still permit the second flight to hmm. arrive at its destination on time. Does Interesting the, that they that, admit that because they pad those flights exactly. to make their, their statistics look better. They would always arrive at of, their eventual destination 10 or 15 minutes ahead of the arrival right, yeah. time. And they'll say that even if we hold up its delay, it, it, it's connecting uh, right. takeoff. Nevertheless, everything will work wow. out all right. It won't be 100%, but it'll be 95% of, sure. all, of all one-stop flights permit the the arriving passenger to get on the connecting flight in time. So, Pauline, I say cheers to United <laughs> Airlines and apologies, sincere apologies, United, for having criticized you so fre frequently be before. No, this is a very good thing they're doing. United Absolutely. has taken a step that will be much appreciated by the airline passengers of America. And, Pauline, apparently you agree finally. Absolutely, yes, after, yes, yes. After first criticizing <laughs> me. Let's move on now to the topic of travel to Hawaii. You, you may recall that we recently drew attention to the dramatic and extreme steps that the city of Honolulu and the island of Oahu have taken to prevent the further prosperity of air Airbnb. Well, they regard an Airbnb as a an enemy. That company, the, Airbnb, is the company that rents rooms and apartments or hotels or, or homes rather, rather than in hotels. The City Council of Honolulu, as we earlier pointed out, they make laws for the entire island of Oahu. They have recently created whole areas in Hawaii where Airbnb is prohibited from placing rentals. And Airbnb has also been made the subject of a giant uh, uh, fine. I mean, I've read it. It's as much as $10,000 for any Airbnb rental in an apartment in which the owner remains in residence. Uh, throughout well, the, the, what it is? No, no, no. It's the opposite. It, it's yeah, yeah. it's you. The owner can't be, there, can't be there, and it has to be in an area that is not zoned for resorts, and therefore the apartment can't be rented out for less than thirty days. The uh, owner of that apartment risks a ten thousand dollar per day fine. That's the legislation. And Pauline, these two extreme sets steps, and we have to call them extreme sets.
threats. They've been so dramatic that literally hundreds and hundreds of homes and apartments in Honolulu have been taken off the air the the, the group market. of people yeah. that are available but it's not just you. Airbnb just to be it's it, well, if if you find them through HomeAway or VRBO or FlipKey right. if it's in a non-resort area uh, then it it's probably gone. Uh, Pauline, the city council of Honolulu took very dramatic and drastic steps, but now a counter reaction has set in. Hmm? One of the gentlemen who who uh, uh, rents his apartments and makes them available for rentals through Airbnb. He has pointed out that in the last 10 years, tourism to Honolulu has increased by nearly 3 million tourists. Mm-hmm. And yet the hotel industry of Honolulu, according to him, has not expanded. They haven't grown in a way that would match those additional 3 million new visitors. And therefore he asks, where will the tourists stay? It's isn't it obvious? He has said that tourism to Honolulu is going to suffer badly. That people will That's not be able to yeah. find to find hotel rooms huh? or to find accommodations for themselves if they cannot make use of Airbnb. Other Honolulu business people have pointed out that a large number of the families, in particular, who visit Honolulu, are willing to go there only if they can stay in a spacious home mm-hmm. or a spacious apartment, an apartment with a kitchen and with a dining room and with all the other features that small groups of this sort require. And they will not come there if they are required to stay in a hotel and to rent several rooms in a hotel to accommodate them. As it is, uh, because of this, because of the reaction to this drastic legislation by the City Council of Oahu, Hotel rates for staying in Oahu in Honolulu have recently skyrocketed. There apparently is a realization that is setting in among the members of the city council of Honolulu that there are simply too few hotels in Honolulu, and therefore the removal of apartments will badly damage tourism. <coughs> we should say now, it's not the removal of all apartments. Well, of in many areas where they are zoned for resorts. It is legal still to rent apartments, but a lot of the apartments that used to be for rent are now gone. Are now gone, and the city council has not has now realized that, and a great many of them are saying to each other, what in the world have we done? <laughs> what have we done to tourism, to the place where we live? The, the validity of those complaints is such that apparently some members of the island city council have expressed the thought that they may have acted too recklessly. They may Uh have done this too fast without considering what they were doing overall to the visitor statistics for Honolulu. And I would suggest that because of this counter-reaction, you will now find a more limited enforcement these that'll be interesting we'll see we'll see i'm not saying that you should you should rely on that but it may happen back to you pauline we have to take our first break we thank you for listening don't turn that dial
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have one of our favorite guests back, the peripatetic Seth Kugel. Um, welcome back, Seth. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. So this is a topic that I'm, I don't think we've ever covered before on the travel show, but you've, you've covered it in a very thoughtful op-ed for the New York Times. I'm just going to read the title, and then we'll go to it. It's called, How Guilty Should You Feel About Your Vacation, and What Can You Do About It? I, I think probably some of our listeners are thinking, why should I feel guilty about my vacation? Uh, well, there are a number of reasons. The biggest reason is climate change. Yeah. Uh, air travel contributes, I think it's about 3 or 4% of the total greenhouse gases that are warming the planet. And uh, flight uh, air travel is also one of the hardest um, places to reduce people's carbon footprint. So we're not going to be getting rid of jet fuel anytime soon and replacing it with, uh, you know, um, batteries or wind power or something like that. So that's one reason. The other reasons are uh, people will be familiar with various sustainable travel issues, like are we overcrowding certain cities? Are we ruining the lives of people in them by traveling to them? Um, it's an open, all these, this is all a very open question. It all really is a very personal decision in how you view the world and your place in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's something I struggled with quite a bit while writing the piece. And that was clear from the opening of the piece where you kind of bring it in with, I feel guilty to be a travel writer. Do, am I part of the problem? Uh, well, broke my heart to read it, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the travel writing industry, uh, all of us who write about and often glorify travel and have made travel into something that people covet and, uh, you know, save up for, um, we have to at least think about the fact that we are um, increasing the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere uh, by doing this and also making some people's lives more difficult. Now, there's plenty of very responsible travel going on, lots of great sustainable travel efforts. There's also a lot of people who are making their living from being in the travel industry. There are a whole lot of arguments that say that you should still travel, Um, but I, I, I... you know, someone wrote to me, and I think in the piece I say something like, I just realized this. And they said, what do you mean you just realized this? And, <laughs> and, and because it's certainly true that jet fuel is terrible for the environment. Yeah. And when you ask people to travel more and encourage them to travel more, you're obviously increasing that. But it's true. I hadn't really thought of it. I thought that it was the fault of the oil companies and the airlines for not having better technology. Right. And I was just playing my role in the economy. Right. Dad, I see you leaning into the mic. What what did you want to add to this? Well, I just want to add that the problem the problem is that we realize that we are worsening the problem, of it, but what can we do about it? Our decision to travel or not to travel by air uh, can have only an infinitesimally well, uh, small mm-hmm. impact on the emission of carbon dioxide. Well, that is true that one person's can, but if I'm a travel writer, I'm impacting a lot more than one person. That's but this true. is the sort of the heart of the whole the whole argument is how much do we try to reduce our own carbon footprint? How much do we uh, want to be good actors in this world? And how much difference does it really make? There's another argument that says that all of our efforts should be put into changing our current political world and electing to office people who will tackle this at a level where it actually will make a bigger difference. 
uh, taxing carbon uh, use, that sort of that sort of a thing. And Seth, the, I, I couldn't I agree. My- I couldn't agree more. Certainly, one of the impacts that we could lessen would be to substitute small uh, trips by air with high speed rail. If the United States were to adopt uh, policies uh, uh, creating a great many uh, rail setups in the United States, wouldn't that eliminate a great deal of the air travel I that could, is now I could, required? I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. I mean, I did say in the piece that I have done some train travel that pe- people don't often look as an alternative to train travel, but I took a trip from Miami to Orlando. Uh, which is, uh, which and you went very, by very air pleasant. on that on that shorter than today. No, no, he went by train. Miami to oh, Orlando? By, did you mean, or from from uh, New York to oh, Orlando? Yeah, no, from Miami to Orlando. That oh. was my trip. Yeah. Oh, okay. We are speaking with Seth Kugel. Uh, uh, he writes a lot for the New York Times. He has a terrific op-ed out right now. It's called How Guilty Should You Feel About Your Vacation and What Can You Do About It? I know that some people would say, well, what you can do about it is buy carbon offsets. You deal with that a little bit in your op-ed. How effective is that and how do people find out about those types of, of the opportunities? <clears throat> Well, carbon offsets are when you pay some uh, organization, nonprofit, or something like that to uh, contribute to a project which reduces carbon emissions somewhere else in the world. So you might be paying someone to save a forest somewhere or to have more efficient um, cattle grazing uh, techniques. And allegedly, the amount you pay actually offsets the exact amount of carbon that your seat or your presence on the plane and your luggage caused. Now, that is a calculation that is very difficult to do, mm. but I was encouraged. I, I, it's funny, it only comes up for about two sentences in the article, but I spoke to people for hours about this, so I knew the right thing to say. And many of these programs are very, very good. They're very strictly monitored, uh, and you can donate uh, in a number of ways. I mean, the easiest way is just to, to Google it and find it, but the airlines will often let you add an uh, amount that they will donate. There's plenty of other, uh, plenty of calculators to check, like how much you need to donate. Um, and as long as they're sort of certified by one of the big players in this, I mean, someone is monitoring their program very closely, and it is probably doing something. Now, does that really? It's kind of like, um, you know, you're causing a problem in one place, and you're alleviating it in another place. Uh, right. Obviously, the best feels very human, but yeah, <laughs> go ahead. You know, the best thing would be to buy carbon offsets and then not travel. Right. But as long as you're going to do it, uh, I, but I take it a step further. I think that instead of just buying carbon offsets for what you travel, you should make sure that part of your charitable giving or part of your political activism uh, goes towards working against climate change. Uh, and it shouldn't just be limited to the number of miles you travel in, sure. in a plane. Yeah. Very quickly, we've got about 30 seconds left. Are there any airlines that are better than others in terms of how they use fuel? Uh, yeah, there's some advances in biofuels. I, I just I, I feel bad about getting into the exact uh, airlines right now because it's always mm. changing. But you can just Google and look up like which look airlines are using biofuels and, and fuels and, and try to favor those airlines. Yeah. Well, thank you, Seth. It's a fascinating op-ed, a a sobering one in the New York Times. How guilty should you feel about your vacation? Always lovely speaking with you, Seth. Thanks so much for having me.
to the Travel Show, where we usually talk about places you should go. But right now, there's a big emphasis on places that are getting overloved or over-touristed. Writing about that for the New York Times is Elaine Glusak. She has a terrific article out right now called Cooler, Farther, and Less Crowded, The Rise of Under-Tourism. Welcome back to the Travel Show, Elaine. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Pauline. So what is under-tourism? So the idea of under-tourism is a set of approaches to battling over-tourism, which, as you said, is is sort of an overcrowding of certain places. And there have been a lot of different tactics that have been used, um, the most popular being sort of visitor quotas, which you see at places like Machu Picchu. Hmm. Um, And more recently, Dubrovnik is doing that with cruise passengers. But there are some newer solutions uh, that are being proposed by some destinations. Some of them are asking you to come in the off-season. These might be destinations or even outfitters offering trips in the off-season, suggesting less crowded places to go. Sort of alternatives, say, to Dubrovnik might be like the Eastern Peninsula. So it's the idea of dispersing this heavy footprint and making it lighter and broader. And there are even full tour operators who only try and take people to under-touristed places, right? That's right. That's sort of their aim. Um, and there's a couple reasons they do it. You know, they'll say, uh, you know, in this story, I covered a, a, a new company called Uncover Travel, and they um, just go to places um, in shoulder seasons um, that are sort of alternative to those super popular places. Um, and they believe that this gives you a more authentic experience. Uh, another new company that I covered is called Off-Season Adventures, which, as their name suggests, really just goes um, to places uh, when other people aren't going there. And they make um, the case for that um, partially as, you know, an economic one. They, they feel that um, they are supporting um, the tourist industry year-round as opposed to seasonal. So in some of these destinations, uh, for example, like uh, Tanzania Safari Lodge, they're able to keep these people employed through uh, the off-season when normally they might not have work. Now, with, let's say, that safari lodge in Tanzania, won't there be terrible rains in the off-season? Won't they have be dealing with, with weather conditions that would make being on safari unpleasant? Yeah, that's what the, I asked the same thing. And, you know, they make the case that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's not sustained rain and everything's green, so your pictures will pop. <laughs> you know, so you do have to keep you have to keep that in mind that it's it's not like you know the perfect weather, right? Um, but well, sometimes you know imperfect weather can be a good thing too. I was talking to um, uh, an operator of Gondwana Eco Tours, excuse me, Gondwana Eco Tours, hmm. and um, they run a Northern Lights um, tour in Alaska. And everyone associates the Northern Lights with the depths of winter when it's really really cold in Alaska. And he was making the point that. You know, they're actually really great in fall, and they're not as busy because Mm. people think they have to go in winter, but the weather is better. Wow. We're speaking with Elaine Glusak, who wrote a fascinating article in the New York Times. It's called Cooler, Farther, and Less Crowded, The Rise of Under-Tourism. And just to give an idea of the scope of this problem, I'm I'm taking this from your article, Elaine. You write that from that from 25 million travelers in the 1950s, tourist arrivals around the world grew to 1.4 billion in, in 2018. And the World Tour- Tourism Organization forecasts that number to rise to 1.8 billion by 2020. 
30. And and this is everywhere. Uh, it's even in places you wouldn't have thought would be too overcrowded, like the state of Colorado. What is Colorado doing to deal with this issue? Yeah, Colorado is an interesting example because tourism is very important there, and they, and they don't necessarily want to deter people from coming to Colorado uh, because it is a big part of their economy. It's important to the people that work there, the people that live there. Um, but they also don't want um, that sort of damaging tourism where you get too many people at the same place at the same time. So their proposal has been something called the Colorado Field Guide, which um, is an online resource that outlines um, itineraries across the state and throughout the seasons. So it's this idea of getting people interested in more than, say, going to Rocky Mountain National Park, Mm. um, which is great. But maybe you want to go to Rocky Mountain National Park in the fall or in the spring, you know, a different time. Right. And even in places like Sedona, Arizona, where you wouldn't think that any part of it is undiscovered, there apparently are places you can go and get away from the crowds. It was interesting to me that what the Netherlands is trying to do to uh, stop the over-tourism of, of Amsterdam. Yeah, they they have an interesting approach. They sort of look at all of Holland as, they look at Amsterdam as being a base for all of Holland. And they're now saying, Please come, stay here. We're happy to have you. Uh, but then get out and see, uh, use Amsterdam to see the rest of Holland. You might want to see the Van Gogh Museum, which is, you know, which is a must. It's really spectacular. But then maybe you want to go to South Holland and see where he grew up or experience the canals in cities other than Amsterdam, like Leiden. Right. And because of this trend, certain companies are now pioneering destinations nobody would have thought of in the past, uh, like the stands. Um, uh-huh. now I'm not talking about like Stan and Ollie. Or <laughs> Can you explain that? Right, exactly. So um, a lot of the luxury tour tourism companies have, have sort of pioneered, like, let's go to the next great place. Um, and one of those is called TCS World Travel, and they have these very over-the-top, you know, um, trips where you're spending $100,000 for three weeks, but um, they're calling it first chance tourism, um, and uh, they're putting together a trip that goes to Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan um, wow. next April. And only charging $99,950 for the pleasure. Well, it's a fascinating article, and it's an important topic. Once again, we have been speaking with Elaine Glusak, who wrote an article for The New York Times called Cooler, Farther, and Less Crowded, The Rise of Under-Tourism Across the Globe. Travel providers and government agencies are responding to over-tourism with suggestions for less crowded places and quieter seasons. Thank you, Elaine, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Nancy Burkaw. She is a contributor to the Well section of The New York Times. Welcome to The Travel Show, Nancy. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here. And I think you're our first guest we've ever had calling in from the United Arab Emirates, although that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, really. All right. 
Yeah, maybe which is a, maybe a little bit because I did have to fly to get here. That is true. And did you experience any turbulence? Because Nancy just wrote a really interesting article called "Overcoming Fear of Flying in the Bumpy Skies." And turbulence is a natural occurrence and should be expected, not dreaded. The tur- trick is learning how to go with the flow. And you start the article by bringing in climate change. So I'll start it th- that way too. Has turbulence gotten worse because of climate change? Well, anecdotally, people do believe that it has. Um, And I fly a lot. I mean, I I fly all around the world. Sometimes I circle the entire world two or three times a year. Hmm. And I feel like, boy, it seems bumpier up here. I've noticed that, too. That that I'm flying more, hmm. or the, um, any number of things. So it's it's always hard to pin down what climate change is doing or or not doing. But you did, but did speak th- with a scientist who said exactly. that there could be that, that, some effect. Yes, that scientist is key in getting real data, and he believes that it probably not probably it most likely is, but only in certain. Um, elevations in the atmosphere. So it might be affecting um, when you're 38,000 feet and above, you might get a little bit more, but it may not be affecting all levels of the atmosphere. And what what is it? Well, what is it about climate change that would be affecting turbulence, according to the scientist? I think increase in winds Hmm. and um, atmospheric instability. Um, So that, you know, that would sort of account for the the bumps. Right. Um, and he and said that, that there's more clear air turbulence in the higher right. elevations. Yeah, I so I guess if you're taking a longer flight, you will likely go higher, and that would be more likely when it would hit you, turbulence. Right. And you're in the air longer, so you have a longer window of time by which to experience turbulence. And is this something that should be of worry to passengers. Uh, First of all, can planes withstand more turbulence? Well, according to the Delta captain that I spoke with, and many captains that I've spoken with over the years, um, planes can withstand more than we could possibly even imagine. Hmm. Um, So they really are never tested. And when cargo planes are flying without passengers, they just fly right through the bumps. They don't care. Right. The only reason that commercial airlines um, try to avoid turbulence is they want their passengers to be comfortable. Right. Because that's really their big selling point. You know, all the planes are roughly the same prices. They all have sort of the same layout. But who can give people the best ride? So that's why they tried to avoid it. So, so to put it bluntly, no plane has ever been shaken out of the skies. I have never heard of one. Um, <laughs> okay. And some planes have gone down, and we don't know the reasons why. Hmm. But I, it's usually something really catastrophic and unusual and not bad weather or bumping around. We are speaking with Nancy Burkaw, who's written a very interesting new column in the New York Times called Overcoming Fear of Flying in the Bumpy Skies. So uh, according to your scientist, maybe point one, there's 0.1% more, I believe, of, of turbulent flight. So it's not much. 
Uh, but still, there are a lot of people out there who are terrified of flying, and, and this news might make them even more scared. You give advice in this article on, on what to do if you fall into that category. What is some of that advice? Yes. I, I think um, really the thing that people are talking about these days that they fear the most is the turbulence. It's right. less the claustrophobia and some of the things in the past we talked about yeah. as people when we were un- uncomfortable about flying. But now um, the turbulence is the thing people are talking about. Wherever I go, I'm sort of eavesdropping people saying, well, my flight was really turbulent or all these things. And I think we're kind of creating more fear by talking about it. <laughs> Whoops. You know, you know, it's <laughs> contagious. Yeah. Right? Oh, that person had a bad flight. Maybe I will. Maybe turbulence is bad. But what the um, psychiatrist that I spoke with um, suggested is to really not avoid turbulence, not think, oh, I hope I don't have turbulence. Except that turbulence is going to be a part of every flight because it is. It's just the air doing its thing. Right. And the plane is doing its thing by responding to the air. It's actually evidence that you're flying. Right. And you're so not, yeah. <laughs> you're not and, in a no man's land. And you're so, on a plane. And so you just have to accept it and know in advance that this will be part of it. Well, we have been speaking right. with Nancy Burkaw, uh, of author of a very interesting article called Overcoming Fear of Flying in the Bumpy Skies in the New York Times. Thank you, Nancy. Oh, well, thank you. What a pleasure to speak with you both. Welcome back to The Travel Show. You know, a lot of people ask us, what are the best destinations for certain seasons of the year? And a lot of people don't even think of going to Europe in the wintertime. They think of it as a summer destination. But that's when, say, you go to London, uh, the the theater scene is in full swing at that time of right. year. And it's a great time to see the, the openings at the various museums. And when in Paris you go to the Louvre, you are the only person sitting, <laughs> standing in front of the Mona Lisa. Well, the, really? the crowds have gone. <laughs> the, the crowds have thinned. If you're there in December and January, yes. the crowds have gone. They, the crowds have gone. So we on Fromers.com put together an entire new piece on what were the best places to go in Europe in, in winter. winter. <laughs> One of them seems counterintuitive, oh. Venice. Now, when you oh. go to Venice in winter, you do risk what's called the high water season. So you have right. to bring galoshes uh, because sometimes the city starts to sink a bit. But you're also there during carnival if you go to Venice during Carnival, that's one of the most enchanting times of the year. That's when people actually put on those spectacular masks that you see for sale all over Venice uh-huh. at other times of the year. And you can actually buy tickets to go to the famous balls of Venice at that time of year. Or you can do what my family did last year. We went to Innsbruck, Austria. 
which is this spectacular town. It at one point was the epicenter of the Habsburg Empire, so there are, se- there are several splendid palaces there to tour. Uh, there's also great art museums and a really fascinating history museum, but most people go in winter to ski. And nearby, right outside of Innsbruck, is this gorgeous glacier that even with climate change still gives you perfect powdery skiing uh, in the winter, as well as four other mountains. It's such an amazing ski resort town that there are actually trams from the center of the city up to the ski resorts. So you don't have to rent a car uh, to go skiing there. Other, What are other places in Europe that you like in winter, Dad? I, I like the fact that you do no longer experience the unbelievably hot weather that has mm. fallen upon Europe during the months of July and August. Yeah. Uh, they do not have that much air conditioning there, and you suffer from temperatures of 100 degrees and 105 degrees lately. lately. And you have to remember that back in the day, uh, the French Riviera was considered mostly a winter destination. Exactly. You went there to... To, 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 to warm be a, up a little, a little, a little bit. warmer, yeah, but without the extraordinary temperatures that Europe has experienced in recent years. Yeah, yeah. So we say, why not do winter in Europe? It'll be much cheaper. Uh, the crowds will have dispersed, and there's so much to see and do. We hope you'll visit us at Fromers.com to get ideas of where specifically to go. I'm looking at the clock. We have to take a break. To those who are traveling, let us wish you a hearty bon voyage. <laughs> 